The following podcast contains spoilers. We strongly recommend you watch the episode of The Americans we're discussing before you listen to this podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to Slate's TV Club Insider Podcast for Season 3, Episode 3 of The Americans, Open House. In this episode, in addition to my bosses, Joel Fields and Joe Weisberg, we'll have the writer of this episode, Stu Zickerman. Today, we're going to talk about pulling teeth, car chases, and Nerf guns. I'm Molly Nussbaum, the script coordinator here at The Americans. We are back this week in our writer's office here in Gowanus, Brooklyn. I'm here with my bosses, Joel Fields, Joe Weisberg, and the writer of this week's episode, Mr. Stu Zickerman. Hi, guys. I'm not your boss, too. You are not my boss. (laughs) I don't answer to you. I thought she was going to... Very clear. (laughs) You are not my boss. Damn. (laughs) But you can be the boss of this episode, Open Mm. House. Mm. So I think the most talked about aspect of this week's episode is the tooth pulling scene. Uh, You know, it's basically a silent scene now. There's no dialogue. But there were lots of versions where that wasn't the case or there wasn't a tooth pulling and all, all sorts of things. Can you guys talk a little bit about how this came to be? Well, as with many things on the show, it started out as a conversation in the bedroom. Remember, I think it first started out as uh, Philip, Elizabeth would come home and come into the bedroom and they would talk and uh, make love. And um, then obviously we turned it into he pulls her tooth out. Yeah. The pull <laughs> the tooth out. It's a fine line you know. on this show. <laughs> pull the tooth out. And um, there was always an idea to pull the tooth at some point, right? And we talked about this would be the episode where the tooth would come out. And we would try and do some scene where Philip would pull Elizabeth's tooth out with a rusty um, pair of pliers. But a lot of shows, you know, Philip pulling Elizabeth's tooth would just be enough. But in trying to find a way to bring depth and honesty and emotion to that kind of a scene, the decision was made to sort of bring those two ideas together and for this to sort of do what is in essence a lovemaking scene through the pulling of a tooth. By the way, I can go back even one step further, and it's sort of a good lesson in how writer's rooms can work. Because I remember one person in the room pitching this kind of fantastic off-the-wall idea for a dental thing. I don't remember what it was, but I remember everybody going, oh, that's fantastic. And then somebody else saying, wait, and then pitching the tooth pulling. Mm. And But you never would have gotten the tooth pulling if the first person hadn't had this just insane other idea for a dental scene. I remember the dental scene ideas all started coming because we were talking about trailer moments for a season three. Right. We were talking about like, what are some, you know, in the first four episodes, what are some moments? How can we make some really indelible moments? And one had already been written and we knew Elizabeth had toothache. And, you know, I think Josh Brand said. That's right. We had we we had first written the fight and we had written this injury in her mouth and had this idea that that was just kind of swirling in the background. But the hurt her tooth hurt. Yeah. But but then someone else was pitching a dental story. And at the same time, we realized that the FBI would be looking for people who had an injury to their tooth or jaw, and it all just sort of came together. Another thing I remember is we had talked about, once we came up with this idea, we talked about ending the episode with it because it seemed so big and dramatic. And as often happens, it wound up being two-thirds of the way through the episode as a bridge along the story road rather than some ending we were driving towards. Yeah. You know, it comes after that long night of the we call it the long night of the soul, right? The long night of uh, of Elizabeth being out driving around for hours upon hours and Philip wondering if she'll survive. And, and again, we'd written the scene where she comes home, she's okay, they talk, they make love. Like we've written that. 
And um, why have sex when you can have your tooth? Yeah. And they went downstairs and, and, and pulled the tooth later. Yeah. And, um, and it became this sort of, um, to your guys' credit, really just was a perfect demonstration of how they feel about each other. Were you on set when they shot that? Yeah. I was, I was actually I, there with Stu. I was going to say, I went over for the <laughs> rehearsal and I don't, it's the first time in my whole career where I was on set and the crew was cringing from the rehearsal. Okay, I mean, from the get-go, it's just one of those moments. Everybody was, and we were shooting in that tiny little set, you know, that we Yeah, you know, on. it's it's um, the Jennings basement right. set, which is actually separate from our other Jennings house sets. And it's very narrow. It's very small. It doesn't take yeah. up a lot of room. It doesn't have any flyaway walls, so we mm-hmm. couldn't take a wall out or anything like that. So, you know, everybody's in there, and they were rehearsing it. And just, you know, because Matthew and Carrie are so game, you know, they both were contributing ideas. And Tommy Shlami, the director, was... He decided in the moment to get that shot of the eye, the really tight shot of the eye, because in the rehearsal, you could see like her eyes were just so, she couldn't blink, you know, she couldn't blink. Her eyes were so wide open. And he, I just remember he turned to Richard and said, uh, we, we got to get that, we got to go tight on the eye at some point. What was also amazing about being on set for that scene is just the unbelievable orchestration that that Tommy, the director of this episode, had to do not just with Carrie and Matthew, but with the makeup department, with the props department, because the actual extraction of the tooth happens in about four separate parts, the stopping and starting of it, because he has to do the first pull, not get the whole tooth, and then go back in. Well, the blood was the issue. And the blood as well. It was like, how do you, because she can't hold her mouth open and hold the blood in her mouth, right? So he would open her mouth, he'd get the pliers in there, and then Tommy would say, okay, now bring in the blood. And, and everybody would freeze, everybody would freeze, everyone hold. Right? And they'd run in, and they would put the blood capsule in her mouth and fill her the back of her mouth so that she could spit, right, out the blood, and knowing that we would cut away in that moment. And um, it was great. I mean, we did it three or four times, and every time it's like, everybody freeze! And they'd run in and put the blood capsule in her mouth and put, oh, put a little bit on her lip, right? And maybe, should we put a little splattering on her eye? No, 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 no. You know, like, you could hear a pin drop oh, yeah. in that studio yeah. because everyone in the crew was just, I think, pretty disgusted with you at that moment. <laughs> it was great. And our crew is used to a lot. Yeah, yeah. they've seen some things. But <laughs> well, what's interesting about it is, as crazy as it is out of context, it, we hope, makes sense in context, but ultimately, it's an act of service for him. It's an act of love. Yeah, that scene really personifies every single thing I love about the show. It's about so many things. And it shows how strong their union is, you know, like, you know, their trust is. Well, imagine trusting your husband to do that. It's... Oh, you know, I was going to say, one of the last things to come into that script was that moment in the kitchen before the tooth pull where, remember, there's no dialogue in that scene either. There had been all this dialogue. Oh, that's, coming see, home. that scene's really and beautiful. She just t- though, and shot. she just takes his, he just takes her hand, you know, he goes to kiss her and she's like, oh, my mouth, my tooth. And she just, you know, he just takes her hand and walks her off screen. And we're like, where are they going? And we think they're going to the bedroom. And next thing you know, they're in the basement. Someplace even more intimate. It's, it's great. I remember, Stu, you coming up to me. I can't remember if it was after that scene or a different scene in the episode. And just saying, Tommy Shlami has the most visual brain yeah. of any person I've ever been around. But, and you really can see it in that scene. Yeah, he does. He thinks through every single shot. You know, I mean, most you know, a lot of directors plan shots and plan things. But Tommy just has such a sense of like not just what's inside the frame but how it's going to play in the pace of the scene you know that scene's really striking too because of a moment i know at least Stu has wanted to work in basically since last season with the the tv the broadcast sign off where the national anthem would play on tv at the end of the night 
And that has been put into and taken out of more scripts than I can count. And this is actually (laughs) such a great place for it because it provides this really specific backdrop to to this otherwise silent scene. And uh, that scene's also shot beautifully. It's basically just the light of the television. Uh, on yeah. the whole set. That's one of those rare things that start, started in the outline and lasted all the way through. Yeah, and boy, yeah. I, I, there's a great moment where our post department sent us a bunch of actual sign-offs that we saw, and it's such a particular period of reference, but one of the things that really stood out to us when we sat there and listened to it was that these things were put on tape, and they were played back so many times by the station that they started to warble. And so the National Anthem has this kind of warbling sound of the old tape being played. We recreated that for the scene too. I remember when we first heard that in post and we looked at each other and just, we both grinned that huge grin. I think someone like, said, this is exactly... someone said to us, we can fix that. Yeah, and, and we, we said, like, no, no, fix it. No, you no, need no. to replicate That's it. That's what we're here for. <laughs> <laughs> well, another great element to this episode that I think is very Americans is what I like to call the non-car chase. Uh, when you think of a car chase scene, you tend to think of like, uh, you know, fast cuts and revving and, you know, rubber hitting the road. And Why do that? It's not quite when you can what be real. happens it's a car in follow. this. It's a car follow, yes. And as Joe well knows, I had, I'm not going to say a nervous breakdown, but like I'm very traumatized by this car chase scene because we, um, there's the that. The names. Ugh, the names. There's that moment where Philip draws Elizabeth the route that she should drive to outlast the, the team, that's the net. The right. net. Mm-hmm. And we knew that it was to be in Frederick, Maryland. And Joe had me study period maps of Frederick, Maryland and figure out the actual route they would draw. So if anyone needs directions <laughs> anywhere in Frederick, Maryland, I'm pretty much your go-to. You'll notice that was where I hopped off the email chain. Was that an option that I missed? <laughs> Not for you, no. For, uh, for any fan of the Americans, I mean... You know, which I was season one, um, to like sit down in a room with Joe Iceberg and let him pitch you this idea he has in his head, <laughs> which this whole car thing like, was this idea that Joe had. And again, like this happens a, lot, a fair amount on the show, which is, you know, they pitch you an idea and you're just like, huh? <laughs> you know, and, and literally I was like, wait, so she's being surrounded, but we can't see any of the cars. No one can see anyone. And no one's actually going to Everyone's on parallel streets. anyone. Everyone's on parallel streets. But, and like this whole, and really it was not something that was terribly organic to the episode. It was something that we wanted to do in the episode, but it wasn't necessarily something that necessarily fit right off the bat with like, because off the Bible, you know, and, and, and the stories we wanted to cover in the episode. And I just remember like, I had to go get my, my yellow pad um, a Joe pad and I uh, had to just write it all down so, Joe can you just take me through it one more time because I just don't you know and we rewrote that scene I don't know I mean, 200 times, times. And a once, billion one, times and once Tommy came on board you know first of all for us just getting the the names down Omaha Nebraska all like, the code the, names all the code names all that. But, which by the way we added a code name at the final mix basically right. there was one more city thrown in but Tommy for once one last Tommy, traumatizing moment for me you know, once Tommy came on board and he'd read it, he 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 had to make he had to actually make it happen, right? And I remember thinking, if I were going to shoot that scene, it would take five days to shoot it. <laughs> like how that you know how are you going to shoot the scene in in the context of a seven or eight day episode? But he like he took it he took to it like a like a dog to a bone. I mean, he literally and all the things that he didn't understand, we would talk through, and then we would try and find solutions and a way to end it and a way to to build the tension of it. 
And um, and again, in miracle, incredible. I mean, again, it's a testament to Joe and Joel because it things always end up like this. I mean, it ends up being a character action scene, kind of. Well, it's, 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 char- it's so difficult know? to construct, I think, an action scene that is so silent that doesn't have a lot of exposition or people turning to each other saying, I think he's around the next corner. Uh, but it's not entirely reliant on music to prompt the audience either as to what's happening. Um, and we have done a couple scenes like this. I, I mean, can Joe or Joel, either of you speak to kind of creating a lot of tension in scenes like this without a lot of these tropes? Well, I think where it starts for us is as crazy as it sounds with the question, what would really happen? Not how can we create cinematic stress and tension, but what would the real stressors for the character be? What would truly be unfolding? And even if that's counterintuitive cinematically, if it feels real for the characters, try to find a way to express that rather than impose it from the outside. And that's been a pretty good guide. It Although had. it's failed us a few times, it seems to succeed for us more than it fails. Well, I think it does. And, you know, it's complicated because we start from this place of what would it really be? And then the real thing generally isn't really quite filmable. The real thing, and for example, a surveillance or a counter-surveillance scene is too big and too complex to film. So you start breaking it down and think what parts of it can you film and how can you make that comprehensible? And the first thing you get to is when you break it down to something filmable, it often is very hard to follow. So then what do you put in to make it something you can follow? And you get this sort of hodgepodge thing and usually we just struggle with it. We struggle with it to put in pieces that are understandable but still real. Yesterday we were walking and talking about a a pivotal moment in the finale that we've just written and we're talking about refining it. And we stopped our conversation and Joe and I spent about a half hour talking through all of the story that we imagined happening off camera for the character that got him to where we wanted to go. And then I think we'll wind up adding two sentences to the script that may or may not convey all of that, but we know it. And so it feels true to us and you just... Hope that will seep through to the audience. Yeah, and at the end of the day, I mean, um, you know, having watched the final cut, I'm not sure the audience can understand exactly what's going on in that scene. But here's the, what what's so great about it is they understand what Elizabeth's going exactly through. right, and that's Which is all that matters, and that's and it feels real. That's this is the only show that does that successfully on television, and it's what makes it truly unique. I mean, it it's you you worry for her life, you worry that she'll ever make it home and ever see Philip again, and then when she does. It just delivers. And so, like, whatever happens and whether people completely follow that whole, you know, 12-minute scene (laughs) or not, they're on board with it because they're just so hooked into the emotion of it. Guys, we were just talking about how in this episode, Elizabeth is training Hans in counter-surveillance measures. And we have that great shot that I love because it reminds me of Tootsie, where we see Hans in the crowd coming down the street. And actually, if you look closely, you can see our DP and a bunch of our crew members in period costume as – passers-by because we're poor because we're poor or because it's really hard to fill up an entire street with both both of us (laughs) um what joe can you talk a little bit about what hans is actually learning in this and how elizabeth is developing him you know over the course of the season he's both in walking and in a car learn to use his rearview mirror when he's driving, learning how to walk down streets and take turns around corners to check behind him, use techniques like that over long periods of time while walking and driving to keep track of who's behind him and tell if anybody's following him, and then sort of basically do the reverse of that when running surveillance. How much of what she's 
teaching him to do in this early scene does she end up employing later in the non-car chase herself? Well, they're all the same techniques. It's a it's a shockingly small body of techniques, and what makes somebody effective at them is not really learning more and more, but rather getting better at better and better at the small body of techniques. And when you write a scene like that, how much, again, it's sort of about bringing a visual style and tension to something that's really just him walking down the street. How much of that is you guys scripting really specific things? And how much is Tommy or who's ever directing the episode trying to guide the viewer through this somewhat obscure training that he's going through? Well, you know, it's interesting. I actually think back to the episode that Tommy did season one in the in the Gregory episode that you wrote, Joel, where, you know, we sat with him for probably half an hour and talked about these techniques and what they looked like and sat with a piece of paper and sketched things out. And as you say, Stu, that guy's just got some kind of weird visual brain because he sort of listened and looked at the paper and then you could sort of see it getting sucked up into his eyeballs and spinning around in his head. And he just went, as Tommy says, okay, I got it. And that means you can stop talking because he's got it. And then he went out and filmed, I think, the best and most realistic surveillance that's probably ever been put on film. I mean, I remember when I, when I sat down to write the scene, right? I, I got excited because the guy walking on the street seeing 80s era things. So it was just an opportunity to like, I threw in stride right. Stonewashed jeans you Stonewashed threw jeans. Um, um, I really wanted to throw in Tootsie, a Tootsie poster, you know, because that was coming out. There's no, if, correct me if I'm wrong, I may be blanking on the part of it, but there's no actual counter surveillance in the scene, isn't it? Doesn't no, the scene he pick up after he's done and they're just talking No, about he's him, walking. Right? Yeah, he's yeah. walking. It, it, but yeah, because he didn't want to, um, he didn't want to do that like thing of looking around. Right, he just wanted right. to sort of, because Hans He's is, done with that. He did yeah. that first season. Tommy has moved on. Yeah. And Hans isn't supposed to look like he's looking around. Right. Right. He's supposed to just look like he's walking down the street. Yeah, it's hard to uh, shoot a scene where someone is spying when it should look like they are not spying because it then looks like they're not doing anything. Right. right. Now to talk about something completely different. Uh, Another storyline that's sort of introduced or the stakes are raised in this episode. Adderholt has this moment with Stan where he uh, talks a little bit about Stan's past as an undercover agent with the white supremacist group and asks, what did it take to fool them? We don't touch on Stan's background a ton with his time undercover, but how much of his time undercover do you think affects the way he approaches his job and the way he sees his mission? Season one, we talked a lot, both amongst ourselves and with Noah Emmerich, about Stan and his backstory and how much it affected everything and how much we should even put it into the show. And we actually wrote an entire episode. I don't think we wrote the script, but we wrote a there was an outline. beat by beat story outline that descended into that backstory and uh, took him back into the old case. And uh, we wound up throwing that out and promising that we'd go back there. And one day, one day, maybe we will. One of the great, I mean, one of the great things about working on a TV show that you don't get with movies or even when you're doing the first season of a TV show is that the characters are so developed, right? You know them like you know people. And so Stan's whole history, and even though we've never really gone too deep into it, like so informs him for me. And, you know, when I'm writing him or when I'm watching him, he's so stoic and quiet and and reserved. And to me, like I just apply all this stuff about his messed up time, you know, working undercover, it's just fucked him up. And, and that's what's just so fun about working on a show where characters have such rich histories that play out over time. 
I don't want to go off on too far of a tangent, but I will say as long as you're sitting with, with us here today, Stu, that Stu, in addition to being a very entertaining and vocal part of our writing staff, is an animal in the ongoing Nerf gun wars that we have been having for the last two years here. And I will have my vengeance. No, you won't. Well, Molly's Joe and I do not to... participate. We do not participate. Joe and I do this, but these <laughs> guys. That, there was one. We we heard once that there was going to be a, a nerf battle, and we laid down rules about safety goggles and timeouts. We're very concerned about safety. And we ignored safety. all of those rules, and we just made sure to stage the battle when you guys weren't in the office. And you know what? We had a in great time. In place of a Christmas party, right? We had an epic Nerf gun battle it right was before great. Christmas. It yeah. was fantastic. In case this sounds like some sort of fun thing, oh, in the writer's room, they break out some Nerf guns and shoot. It's really not like that. They've ordered these <laughs> special like Nerf weapons that Automatic, you can only get from like Austria that are like as big as a couch and shoot things that oh, are not generally really called Nerf. Yeah. They're not soft they and bought, spongy. They're uh, hard projectiles. Someone spent several hundred dollars on a drone, a Nerf drone that animated and started Couple walking around and First shooting all, in circles. That someone is me. Second of all, I did not spend the money on it because I spent money, I spent money on Tracy. I, no, I didn't spend the money I on the drone. I've spent the money yeah. on other things the drone turned out to not be worth it because third of all derek joe and i watched several videos where we decided the drone did not move fast enough didn't derek spend two months of his salary on one of these weapons no he spent two months of his salary on my on the outfit for the season two premiere oh okay we we pull a lot of pranks not which we will not discuss at this time but derek did amazingly show up at the season two premiere dressed as Stu, where Derek collaborated with Stu's wife to find out exactly what he would be wearing so that he was wearing literally the exact same outfit down to the belt, shoes, and glasses that Stu was wearing. But don't worry, we're not going to get into that here. No. We have to go finish 11, 12, and 13 now. That's it for this week. Thanks again to my guests, Joe, Joel, and Stu, for joining us to talk about episode three. Join us again next week when we'll talk about episode four, Dimebag. I'm Molly Newsbaum. Thanks again for joining us. Hold up. 